And Jesus will stand trial in our text this morning before the highest court of Israel. Um, They will condemn him. And that will be the decisive and final word on Israel as a nation and how they have responded to and how they have um, ultimately decided sort of final answer time to their Messiah. And starting next week in chapter 23, Jesus will have three Roman trials or interviews and then he'll be crucified. And then in chapter 24, he will rise again. So we're moving quickly now to the crescendo of the gospel. So let's begin this morning by reading Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through 71. The notes are in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, the text is written on the back of the notes. <clears throat> when day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, And they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? He said to them, You say that I am. When they heard this, they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Dear Lord God, as we study this passage, um, we, we tremble that a people so blessed, so privileged, so favored by you, they had received your oracles They had witnessed your son for three years, preaching, teaching, and healing. Might make such a wicked and cataclysmic mistake and error, condemning the righteous one, the holy one of God. Lord, as we read this, we do not feel smug and self-assured in ourselves. We recognize within our own hearts is the same potential for this type of utter rebellion and wickedness. So Lord, help us learn from it. Guard us from it this error, this tragedy of judgment and justice. Let us see the glory of our Savior, who even in the midst of his enemies is fearless, is bold, and is in control. In Jesus' holy name, amen. This is the final word for Israel. After this, as I said in chapter 23, they make their judgment here, they call for it, in chapter 23, when they deliver Jesus over to the Roman officials. So we're going to look at our text this morning in in four points. The first, Jesus is taken before the Sanhedrin. Now that word Sanhedrin does not occur in your English Bibles. It's simply the Greek word, untranslated, transliterated, for counsel. And it's the word used for when the priests and the scribes would come together. It's their high counsel. And so we read in verse 66, when day came... They assembled all of the elders. They, they assembled, well, when the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. Now, if you remember just from the flow of the narrative, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane back in chapter uh, 22, verses 39 through 46. They come and they arrest him. Then verse 44, they seized him and led him away to the high priest's house. And then we spend a little bit of time there while 
Peter denies Jesus while Jesus is mocked and treated shamefully. And now it's sunrise. Now the day is the Passover. If you remember, the Passover began at the sunset the evening before. So Jesus and the disciples celebrated the Passover meal the evening before. But in the Jewish reckoning of time, there's evening and then there's morning the first day. The day begins at sunset. So this is still the Passover. This is the morning of the Passover. In just a few short hours, Jesus will be hanging on the cross. They bring him to their assembly. At daybreak, Jesus is led away to their council. And before we go any further, I want to pause here. Turning your Bibles back to Deuteronomy 16. Um, Maybe wondering, what is this council? Is this a legal council? Is this something they came up with? Well, the law of Moses prescribes for this. In one sense, this is a legitimate court. The book of Deuteronomy prescribes something like this taking place. Now, we'll also see from studying Deuteronomy, this is a perverse, corrupt, wicked court. But we need to understand what it should be doing so that we can contrast what we see them doing in our text. So in Deuteronomy 16, verse 18 through 20, Moses, speaking for the Lord to the people, says this, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Get this. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So you notice our Lord's concern for justice, righteous, just judgment. Now turn to chapter 17. Chapter 17 Pick it up actually in um, verse 2. If there is found among you within your towns, the Lord your God is giving you a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heavens which I have forbidden and has told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. So what we're getting here is the method of judgment. And if it's true that certain and certain, true and certain, that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or that woman who has done that evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses. The one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So we need a diligent inquiry. We need a confirmation of multiple witnesses. And the witness themselves must be willing to be the first to carry out the stroke of justice. Continue reading. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, or any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose, which we now know is Jerusalem. This is the place where the temple is built. This is the place the ark would reside. But when Moses is writing, he simply refers to the place that the Lord your God will choose. 
And you shall come to Levitical priests and to the judge who was in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. So here's point B. This was Israel's supreme court. They're to appoint judges in all their towns, but if any case is too difficult, then they bring it to the town, the place that the Lord your God would choose, which is Jerusalem. So this court in Jerusalem, rightly made up of scribes and priests and judges, is who we learn it's made up of, is a duly appointed body by the Mosaic law. And turn to chapter 19, one other key point here. Um, again, repeating what we've already read. So God has gone out of his way to express it's justice and righteous judgment without partiality, without a bribe, thorough, diligent investigation. This is serious business. 9.15 through 18. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. For the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, the judges shall make, shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is false and has accused his brother falsely, then shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So, what we get then is this emphasis that the judges are to render righteous judgment without partiality. They're, point two, to inquire with great diligence. So these are duly appointed courts in the law of Moses. And, and this court in Jerusalem is the supreme court for Israel. But diligent inquiry, multiple witnesses. In fact, this standard of jurisprudence is, I, I don't think it's an overestimation to state, the foundation of modern Western justice. These principles of a reasonable doubt, facing your accuser, the two come before the Lord. Diligent inquiry. Um, this, this is what God has called the judges to render. We're not going to see them do this, but this is the standard. This is what they ought to be doing. And Jesus is going to confront them on those points. Um, the law has a lot to say about judgment. And, and this is important for us to pause on as well. Just because if you're like me, you see in social media every day calls for you and I to make judgments. There's all these clickbait things that are meant to make you be outraged. I can't believe they did. You're going to be shocked when you learn what this person did. Remember the standards for justice, that it is a serious thing to render a judgment. And even though Facebook and Twitter want you to tell the world your judgments every moment of every day, consider these standards of evidence. So often when I read things, I think, I need to hear more, I need to know more, I need to hear another side of the matter. God cares about righteous judgment. In fact, just giving you one or two more passages, Proverbs 18.13 gives this warning. If one gives an answer before he hears... It is his folly and shame. If I render a judgment, that's ridiculous. How dare, whatever. Without fully hearing a matter, it is foolish and shameful. Proverbs eighteen seventeen: The one who states his case first seems right. Until another comes and examines him. Never render a verdict. Never come to a judgment after only hearing one side of a matter. These are the principles of justice that the Lord lays out in his word. So if we turn back to Luke chapter 22, 
This is the council they're bringing Jesus to. Now, Luke has stripped out a lot of data that the other gospels supply. We know, for instance, when we compare the, the four gospels, that Jesus actually has three Jewish trials. First, he goes to Annas, the, the high priest's father-in-law. Then he goes to the high priest. Then he goes to the Sanhedrin. Luke isn't interested in drawing our attention to that. He told us he was taken to the high priest. We aren't told anything that takes place there between Jesus and the high priest. And when he comes to the Sanhedrin, Luke pays no attention. He doesn't deny, but he pays no attention to the false witnesses and the other accusations. I want you to focus on what Luke focuses on. The issue comes down to one simple issue. Who is Jesus? It comes down to a Christological issue, his identity. That's what the whole thing circles and revolves around. Are you the Christ? So Luke strips away all that extra data so we can see the core of the issue. Why? Why would Israel's leaders, why would their high court condemn their Messiah? Because they refused to accept who he was. He, they refused to accept who he was. And this is the issue today. There's plenty of people who will receive Jesus as a good teacher, as a moral, um, something to, to strive after, a picture of love. Who is he? That's what this is going to center on. What they're going to write over the cross in 23, 28, this is the king of the Jews. All of this turns on the identity of Jesus. And for us, as those who would follow after him, our relationship to him centers on our understanding and receiving of who he is, who he says he is. We must receive him as he is. So this court case is rather simple and straightforward. There's a first question and first answer. There's a second question and a second answer, and then there's a judgment. So let's follow through the text. They led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So the Sanhedrin asked their question. If you are the Christ, tell us. Now, remember, Christ is simply a transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which is what they use to represent the Hebrew word Messiah or Messiah, which means anointed one. So they're asking, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? And Jesus' answer is, is stark in his revealing his estimation of these men. Now, part of the issue here is they're, they're going to emphasize certain aspects. If you look at chapter 23, their sole concern with this question of Jesus being the Christ is, is he the king? So look at, the, look at what they report on to Pilate in verse 2. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So that's the emphasis they're drawing from this. That's the point they want to make. They want to position, picture Jesus as a competitor to Caesar, a challenger to Caesar's power and authority. So Jesus' response is, is threefold. First, if I tell you, you will not believe. What's Jesus saying? Here's what he's saying. They are partial. I use that word because that's what Deuteronomy says they shall not be. In other words, they've already made up their mind they are not investigating anything. They're not, they're not looking to determine what's true. They're not coming together to say what is right. They're not doing a diligent inquiry. They've already made up their mind from as early as chapter 5. Moreover, being impartial is put alongside, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept the bribe. They've already hired spies 
to infiltrate Jesus' disciples and try to find dirt on him. And they've already paid Judas. Turn, turn back to um, chapter 20. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against him. So they've made up their mind. They want to lynch him. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies. In the Greek word, there is paid spies. That's perverting justice. Turn to chapter 22. Verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was a number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad. They agreed to give him money. They're perverting justice. They're partial. They've already made up their mind. In other words, Jesus is saying, you don't really want to know. You're not really looking into this. You're not asking me because you're sincerely saying, are you or are you not the Christ? They just want to condemn him. And so he rebukes them as partial. His second answer And if I ask you, you will not answer. Turn back to chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. You remember this. This is linking back. In fact, a number of things here are linking back to that week in the temple where Jesus was having confrontation with the scribes and the Sadducees and the elders. Chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, Tell us. By what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Jesus said to them, Neither well, I tell you by what authority I do these things. These, here's the blank. These men are liars. This isn't a fair trial. Jesus will not have an opportunity to legitimately ask questions. They're not going to answer honestly. They've already demonstrated. Truth for them is simply a currency to get what they want. Words are used to get what they want. So they're neither interested in the truth from him, nor can he expect to get the truth from them. And so what Jesus is in effect saying is, what is the point of me answering you? You're not looking for truth, and you're not going to speak truth to me. In a sense, we're at loggerheads, which is what makes what he says in verse 69 so shocking and powerful. How will this be resolved? But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. What's going to resolve this stalemate is going to be seen in Jesus weaving together two Old Testament passages, making a radical claim at his identity. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So listen to Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Jesus, to his disciples, has already applied this passage to himself back in chapter 21, 27, but now publicly... Daniel writes this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Jesus is saying that that's, we're at this stalemate here. Where we, there's, there's no point in us talking. But in the future, 
I am going to be the one who receives this kingdom. I am going to be the one who receives this dominion. And then we'll settle things. Jesus is the Son of Man. The other text he weaves together is one he's already thrown in their faces. Psalm 110. Remember back in chapter 21? Hold on. No, chapter 21, I thought. Where is it? Chapter 20. Okay, chapter 20, verses 41 to 40. I should just really look at my notes and trust them. Um, So if you remember, in that week in the temple, it ends with them no longer daring to ask many questions. But look at 41. He said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And here Jesus takes that same text, Psalm 110, verse 1, and he applies it to himself. He's already challenged them on this. You see, Jesus is claiming that Jesus is David's Lord, spoken of in Psalm 110. In other words, what he's doing is not only is he matching their claim, are you the Messiah? (laughs) I'm David's Lord. I'm the one who David calls Lord. I'm the one who appears to God, the Ancient of Days, and receives a kingdom and power and glory and dominion. Which is to say, point three, Jesus' answer is this. Jesus will judge those who would judge him. He says, in effect, there's there's no point talking to you. You don't don't really care what I have to say. You're certainly not going to speak the truth to me. That's okay. From now on, I will be seated at the right hand of God, which is a place of judgment, a place of power and authority. These men who would judge Jesus will be judged by him. In fact, this is the very position that Stephen sees Jesus in when he is being stoned to death. Remember in Acts 7, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Immediately after the ascension, Jesus goes to the right hand of the Father he awaits until his enemies are made a footstool for him. So that's Jesus, the first question, the first answer. They, are you the Messiah? Tell us. What's the point of talking to you? You don't really care what I have to say. You're not going to speak the truth to me. But I'll say this. I'm the one spoken of in Daniel. I'm the one David called Lord. Which then leads to the second question and answer. The Sanhedrin. Are you the son of God then? And they're tracking with him because, notice, they introduce the category Son of God. We get three titles for Jesus in this text. First, are you the Christ? Jesus, the Son of Man, then the Son of God. They've connected this, and I think they connect this with Psalm 2. Turn to to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a massive messianic headwaters where various titles for the Messiah come together and converge in one individual. And I I think the connection you'll see is pretty clear. The one in Daniel receives, listen, as you turn to Psalm 2, a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And Psalm 110 identifies him as a Davidite, as a descendant of David who is yet greater than David. Now read Psalm 2. I think this is the logic the, uh, the Sanhedrin's putting this together. 
Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, which could be Messiah or Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So now we see that the the Messiah, the Christ, the Messiah, is also the king. And then verse 7, he is also the son. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, the day I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, to the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here is this Davidite, this Messiah, this Christ, this king, this son of God who has a worldwide reign. I think, I think that's the connection they're making. The, the logic is also, who else but someone who is God's equal could sit himself down next to God at the right hand of the Father? So they, they ask the question, are you then the Son of God? Back in Luke 22, Jesus answers, you say that I am. And this is a slightly enigmatic answer. I think Jesus is doing at least three things here. First, he doesn't deny it. He doesn't deny it. He accepts the title. There's a, there's a clear confession or admission that he is. Of course, this has been ringing through Luke's gospel. The angel that appeared to Mary in Luke 135 says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born will be called holy, the Son of God. In the wilderness, when Jesus is tempted by the devil, if you are the Son of God, Command this stone to become bread. But more significantly than even that, not once, but twice, God the Father has publicly, audibly gone on record testifying to this reality. At Jesus' baptism in Luke 3.22, the Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And again, when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John present, A voice came out of the clouds saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Is Jesus the son of God? He is the son of God. Absolutely. Luke's gospel has been testifying to this again and again and again. But I think Jesus' answer further indicates that he is unwilling to validate their court. Remember, his charge to them when they interrogate him is, this isn't a straight-up court. This is a corrupt court. You're partial judges. You've made up your mind already. You're perverting justice. Why should I answer you? So by answering this way, I think he further indicates his disdain for them as judges. This is a farce. And third, Jesus' understanding is different than the Sanhedrin's. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the King. And yet, he does not pose an immediate challenge to Caesar's rule. He's already told them, to those who thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, that the kingdom of God is like a man who goes away on a long journey to receive a kingdom, and then he returns. 
And he is the Messiah, but he's now first the suffering Messiah. He will come again as the ruling Messiah. And so what, what they mean by these titles immediately and what he means are slightly different things. We, we see that in how they trump the charges up to Pilate in verse 2 of 23. First, they just flat out lie. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, which is exactly not what Jesus said. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And that's going to be the charge that's going to stick. Rome did not take lightly challenges to their geopolitical rule. And so the placard that will hang over Jesus' head on the cross in 2338 is this is the king of the Jews. And so, yes, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. But what the Sanhedrin means to make out of this is inaccurate. He is not mounting a coup. He is not starting a revolt. And so I think he answers that way intentionally, both to confess, to acknowledge he is. This is, this is where they're going to get him. They're going to say, we, that we got him. We don't hear, hear anything more. But he still has contempt for the court. And his understanding and his, what he means by these terms, is not the same as theirs. Which then brings us to the Sanhedrin condemns Jesus. The Sanhedrin condemns Jesus. At this point, they think they've got him. What further testimony do we need? Well, we read in Deuteronomy. I'd think a lot more testimony, don't you? Two or three witnesses, perhaps. An actual charge, maybe. I mean, they've seen Jesus walking around doing miracles. They don't deny the miracles. They know he worked miracles. They've heard his teaching. Even this very evening, the night before he healed the high priest's ear, he, he's clearly from God. But they don't, they don't need anything more. There's no need for a diligent inquiry. There's no need to examine this matter closely. We got him. He doesn't deny he's the son of God. And so we can take him to Pilate. So, so don't miss this. They do not condemn Jesus because they've made an honest mistake. These are not men who've carefully studied the Bible and just, oh, sadly, they came to the wrong conclusion. Sadly, they just didn't see enough evidence. Now, the whole point of this is this is a joke. They've made up their minds. They hate him. They hate who he is. And the same thing holds true today for people who reject Christ. We, people, we give all sorts of reasons. But at the end of the day, we don't want a king. At the end of the day, we don't want a lord. At the end of the day, we don't want a god. Certainly not one who tells us what to do and expects us to follow him. We, we want to do what we want to do. And we're fine with a, a savior who's often a distant place, who will get us out of hell and thinks nice things about us. But a Savior who has absolute dominion, glory, and a kingdom. A Savior who sits at the right hand of God and will judge the living and the dead. Yeah, we, we struggle with that. We can struggle with that. And so here is Israel's rejection. Because these men corporately represent Israel. And if you turn to the chapter 23, what's gonna, what we're going to find out is the crowd, the people, are going to fall in line with this judgment. So the leaders of Israel, for Israel, render the verdict. The Supreme Court condemns Jesus guilty. He's a blasphemer. He's an insurrectionist. And then the people follow suit. 
Look at verse 1 of 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and from Galilee and even to this place. A little later, the crowds, verse 18, they all cried out together, away with this man, and release Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. You don't hear anyone saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's not necessarily the same people. The people who heralded him on Palm Sunday are not one for one of these people. I'm sure there is some overlap. But the people who are praising him and heralding him and hanging on his words, at, at best, they're silent. These new voices rise from the crowd. Now, Israel's leaders have made their judgment, and Israel as a nation follows in line. Turn now to Acts chapter 2. This is so tragic. They've received the word of God. They received the promises, the covenants, and they condemn and kill their Messiah, their king, and their God. The apostle Peter lays this at their feet in Acts 2. First great sermon in the book of Acts after the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them, the disciples. Acts chapter 2. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There's divine sovereignty. You crucified. There's human responsibility. This they said to the crowd. Not the Sanhedrin, to the crowd. This charge is laid at the feet of Israel corporately. Their highest court condemns him. The people fall in line. And then Peter can look at this mixed crowd of Jews who aren't even from Israel. Many of them have come in for the Feast of Pentecost. It says, you killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. This, this is Israel's final rejection. If you're here today and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, God's reaching out with an offer of peace and a pardon, there's going to potentially come a day where your rejection will be equally final. Today is the day of salvation. If you can hear the Lord, seek for him while he may be found. God has sent his son in the likeness of man in human flesh. He has sent him to die on a cross for our sins as our substitute we might be pardoned. We might have peace with God. And yet we, just like the Jewish high council, we don't want a king. We don't want a God. We don't want someone to obey. And so we come up with excuses. Well, be warned. One day, it might be too late. One day, your no might be the final no. It was Israel's. I mean, even Peter and Acts is hoping, hoping, hoping. Maybe they'll even now change their mind. And the Lord will send times of refreshing. Refreshing. 
But Israel as a nation persists 2,000 years later in unbelief. And we hope and look forward to a day when they will look upon the one whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for their only son. But even now, apart from a remnant, they persist in unbelief and in judgment. So let us who have received Jesus as Lord and Savior rejoice that we have, by God's grace, not by our own merit, by God's grace, avoided this terrible fate. And let us marvel at the courage, the unflinching focus of our Lord. He's being judged by them, and he now says, I'm going to judge you. He's heading to the cross. He's going to finish his mission. As we prepare for a time of communion, let me close in a word of prayer. Lord God, how marvelous is our Savior. How fearless, how bold, how faithful to the utter end. And how wicked were those men who condemned him. And yet, Lord, in our own hearts, we find the same seeds of rebellion. No temptation has overtaken them except what is common to man. So, Lord God, break down the walls of rebellion in our hearts, the, the partitions where we want to be king, where we want to be ruler. Help us to gladly and humbly submit to you, to trust your son, that he would be our God, our king, our Messiah, our righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.